0: This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. The New England groundfish fishery is one of the oldest commercial fisheries in the country. The iconic cod and haddock and flounder have been fished for centuries And that food helped establish the United States, not only as an independent nation, but as an economic juggernaut. In 1976, the Magnus and Stevens Act removed the foreign fleet from the exclusive economic zone in the United States, that's the first 200 miles off our coast, and began the process of trying to manage our nation's fisheries. The focus was maximum sustainable yield. That means taking the most amount of fish that you can responsibly harvest out of our ocean year after year after year. Over the almost 50 years since the creation of the Madison Stevens Act, the groundfish fishery in New England has continued to struggle and new rules and regulations have been put in place to try and control the one lever that fishery managers can actually impact. And that's the catch that comes out of the ocean. Prior to 2010, The groundfish fishery was managed under what was called the Days at Sea Fishery. Every fishing permit was allocated a certain number of days that they could fish, and on each one of those days there was a certain number of pounds of cod and haddock, pollock, hake, etc. that they were allowed to catch and land. This system had some flaws, and we don't need to go into those right now, but its shortcomings led to a significant push from the environmental community, regulators, and some within the fishing industry to radically transform how the fishery was managed and to adopt sectors. That's the current regulatory system that manages and controls the catch within the groundfish fishery. Sectors are a type of catch-share program where individual permits are issued a number of pounds to catch annually, as determined by the catch history associated with that permit, and the best available science that determines how many pounds can come out of the ocean. That catch is studiously tracked by fishermen, managers, and the federal government. It is essentially a glorified and complicated cap and trade system. If you have pounds you don't plan on fishing, you can trade or lease those pounds annually to another fishing entity. If you determine that you no longer want to be a groundfish fisherman, you can also sell that permit to another business. Each permit looks very different depending upon what was caught by the fishermen who owned that permit from 1996 to 2006, meaning that some permits have low allocations or pounds of fish to catch, and those might be worth someplace between 15 dollars to $25,000, whereas others are heavily allocated with pounds of fish, and those might be worth several million dollars to the owner. Since the transition to sectors in 2010, New England has seen a significant decline in the number of fishermen participating in the fishery, with between 200 to 300 boats annually landing at least a little bit of fish in New England. Some of that's due to the number of pounds of fish available to be caught, but many argue, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, is that the system itself has decreased profitability and has provided an advantage to larger and more vertically integrated businesses. Will Senate? Who I was very lucky to interview for this Maine Coast Doc Talk wrote an article that dove into these complicated regulations and the impacts that we're now seeing. 12 years after they were implemented by the New England Fishery Management Council. We have a link to it on our blog, and I would heavily encourage you to go and read that article. I don't agree with everything, but it's worth a read. And I think that you can tell from our conversation through main Coast Doc Talk some of the things that Will saw that were concerning to him and how some of the experiences that he's had in his life shaped the focus of where he was looking, the conversations that he had with the fishermen down on the working waterfront. Here's my interview with Will Sennett, and I hope you enjoy it. Will Sennett is a reporter with the New Bedford Light, and he just published a fascinating article, researched and written in partnership with ProPublica. They did a deep dive into New England's groundfish fishery and explored what's currently happening with ownership, consolidation, and seafood, particularly in the port of New Bedford. So Will, thank you for joining me on Maine Coast Doc Talk, and thank you for the great reporting. This article was really interesting, and I got a lot of emails and calls uh, about it. But before we dive into the article, can you give me a little background on who you are, how long you've been reporting, how long have you been on the fisheries beat, and where can we find more of your reporting and stories?
1: Yeah, sure. And yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. So I'm a reporter. I'm based in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I, I work for a news organization called the New Bedford Light. It's it's I'm not sure if any of your listeners are familiar, but it's it's a startup. It started in June of 2021. That's when we we launched officially. I've been with it since February of 2021. And it's a kind of a nonprofit online news organization. It has a lot of the old guard from the, the Standard Times, the former newspaper or New Bedford that most people used to work for. But kind of has its own history with private equity groups like gutting it. So, and we've grown in the last year and a half into a pretty strong. We have five reporters, a few editors, publisher, and that's where I work. Cover the fishing industry for a few years. I was at the Vineyard Gazette, where I had my first job, brief job in, in journalism. And that's where I had my, it was actually my first beat, the fishing industry, which is, you know, it was quite quaint compared to the New Bedford industry, of course, different, different maw um and i'm fascinated by the fishing industry such as such an important place in in new england history and lore and labor and i think everyone in new england kind of relates to it in some way whether they're actually in it or not and i'm really drawn to it so yeah being in new bedford we have actually two reporters covering it me and and my my colleague anastasia lennon and we we had heard quite a bit just kind of doc talk honestly to, to measure the podcast here, but uh, the private equity, we, we go to public hearings and th- these talk to, to people in the industry and the specter of, of private equity really does kind of loom large over, over the waterfront. So we wanted a chance to really explore that. And we had the opportunity to, in this partnership with ProPublica, uh, which gave us the time and resources to kind of peel meat off and focus on one thing. And that was private equity and the extent of its role in the fishing industry.
0: So the title of the article was How Foreign Private Equity Hooked New England's Fishing Industry. It sounds like you this kind of came from conversations that you were in or around on the working waterfront of New Bedford to prompt this, this research and, and reporting, because groundfish is really complex and it's one of the most contentious fisheries in the country, probably. So what, what made you decide that this was a story that you wanted to dedicate a big chunk of of your, your research into.
1: Yeah. the So you're right. Groundfish. First of all, I'd like to say, I think I underestimated the complexity of the groundfish industry before I started going into it. I had followed it certain parts of the scallop industry, the lobster, in some regulations of the groundfish industry, even the recreational sector when I was at the Vineyard Gazette. But I mean, the groundfish industry, I am humbled by how complex it is and the, the role of, of the federal regulators and the council to who really do get it and work hard to ensure it's regulated well? But yeah, we we just starting off. It, it was kind of a broad story. We pitched it. I think as we had heard private equity, we knew of a few companies that were private equity backed, and we were interested in exploring what that model really meant from a labor perspective, from the ground people working in it and people surrounding it in the industry that seeing what the relationship is like with and people not even related to the firm, but what what role it plays in the industry when it makes an entrance, entrance into an industry. We weren't set on groundfish originally. We we thought about looking at the scallop industry, um, but found that the extent of private equity's control in the scallop industry at this current moment wasn't as severe as, as we thought it might be. There was only a few companies. There was a few, we did find a few, didn't make it into the story, but a few kind of individual, like small scale, maybe guys like five, six boats, not small scale, of course, but not maxed out on their 17 boat cap who are, have this kind of quiet arrangement with a private equity firm. There's one Ohio real estate firm that's involved in the scallop fishery, which I'm not sure why, you know, I don't think the Ohio fishing industry is booming too much these days. But yeah, we focused on groundfish specifically and this one company in the story because it was just kind of the, the, it's a complex story, like you said, and it was the easiest way to really, to get into the story. And it's also the, um the, where the groundfish is where we see kind of more outsized control than another fishery. And it also does have a really, fraught history, as you mentioned. So, so, players so
0: the, the players, the players in this this space, and particularly you guys dig into Blue Harvest as an entity, as an owner. And they're a vertically integrated fishing business in New Bedford that recently joined the New England fishery in terms of, of owning a, a big chunk of it. So let's peel that back. It seems like control is a is a really important underlying theme to the ills that you identified in the fishery as as you're reporting it. So what does control look like in the groundfish fishery? Because it sounds like that was actually a driving factor in terms of focusing on groundfish as opposed to scallop, which scallop is actually the big guy in the room when we talk about value coming across the docks in New Bedford, Mm -hmm. right? But so control is, is, is the... The piece the, the the thread what caused you to start pulling on that thread and, and particularly blue harvest just
1: looking looking at the data really that's one thing to find permit data have you ever there's honestly a question have you ever dug through like permit data before like have you requested those files from from NOAA, and have you seen it before like the big 1200 permit list for the groundfish industry
0: i have yes i've done that for both groundfish and scallops
1: yeah so it's you saw there's a few entities that were that, that jump out but the only entity that's a fishing company that has like a real Accumulation of, of, of quota, and that's that's like the permits and their value based on a certain percentage of the of the a total allowable catch. It was a, a few kind of nonprofit groups that that set up these permit banks. There's one in Gloucester, one in Chatham. There the Nature Conservancy had a good chunk of it, but the the one the fishing company that had the single largest groundfish holdings was Blue Harvest, and we had known that they were a private private equity backed company. So on paper, we look at the how much they own. It was up to twenty-one percent of some species like haddock, down to two percent of some flounder species, for an average of twelve percent of the total aggregate New England groundfish quota. And that's yeah, the single largest groundfish holdings. But when I spoke to managers of the company, it's not like a secret. It wasn't like I'm not a Fed. I just I just talked to people, and I heard that they they do a lot of leasing. And then diving back in the history of leasing and kind of. The unique place it has in the fishing industry—it's kind of a complex one for a lot of fishermen. As a way that, it, as we saw it, a company is able to really expand their control above what they own. And there, there are—I'm sure you understand—we can get into it more. But complexities to it. But yeah, that's why we, we're into the you know, into this leasing market and just the fact that it's so not transparent. Always oh, was more of a challenge than anything. Trying to get wrap our heads around the data, just because the leasing market is just. There, there's no transparency. We were told by people who work for, for the government for NOAA, that you, it's legally you cannot trace it. Like there's, you can't try to draw a red string chart and show where what's going where. It's just untraceable. And you know, I, first we thought it was a challenge. Then we just saw it more as a, a problem because we couldn't. Yeah. You know.
0: So to to unpack that a little bit, so we have consolidation caps on ownership, right? Where you can only own up to a certain percentage of the the average of what you own, which once again, it's not a simple cap to explain to somebody, right? You can own 2% of this and you can own 30% of this, but the average comes together and, and you're good to go. But there isn't any caps on the leasing. And so that was something that really popped as I was reading this from you is like, you can have an ownership control cap, but you aren't capping the leasing. And so is that actually a, a cap, which, which I think is a valid question to, to be asking about the industry. Before we, we dig into that a little bit more though, while we have a lot of great listeners who understand the fisheries world and will understand everything that you're saying when it comes to quota caps and leasing and whatnot, what does private equity mean? Like, So we have Blue Harvest, which is a business. I understand businesses. What's a private equity backed business? And how is that different from so-and-so who owns a fishing boat and a couple of permits?
1: That's, that's, that's really a great question, but it's, it's kind of, I feel like at least in, in the journalism world, private equity is something that's become defined on its own. It kind of just by the, the tone of saying private equity. And I think most are familiar with it to some extent it's private equity. Its model is to essentially buy or buy one company or buy a chain of companies and whether they're public or private companies you know bring them in house make them private right that's the, the the private equity side comes where there's no public shareholders it's a an in-house operation and there i just like to say first of all there's plenty of value in in private equity and its model what it does it it sees value in an industry and places to create more value where that value ends up is kind of the other concern right but on the surface level yeah it it restructures industries it can create investment in in industries, it, it like uh, for example, in, let's talk about fish. The processing plants in New Bedford—it's no secret. A lot of the processing plants are very old. A lot of the boats are very old, and private equity can inject the kind of capital that someone who has owned a fishing boat and has you know pushed by for twenty years can't quite do. So there are there are arguments to it, but the kind of downside of it beyond the and I've, there's no real reporting I've done on this, but the general consensus that they don't pay too much taxes because their structure, which separate thing, but um, is is that it's, it is real outside control. And I'll quote from the mayor in, a, in the story here where he says private equity owns a piece of the waterfront now and without any loyalty to the place, business decisions can become cold and harsh. And that's kind of just nothing against private equity. Capitalism is ruthless. And I don't think it's our job to necessarily change that. It's just, but Yeah, the restructuring of a company trying to seek more profit. The usually the number one cost in in something like the fishing or any industry really is labor, and that's fishing is a high overhead industry, right? But high operating cost industry. But the 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 payments to fishermen, that and the repairs to boats are kind of the highest, yeah, the highest cost they have. And and what we really saw, really really looking at private equity and it's it's how it functions here is that. They were really cutting into the the crew share and what fishermen are being paid. And it kind of sums up what private equity is, right? And sorry, it's it's hard to it's hard thing to wrap your head around, but that's that's kind of the model is. If that any more questions just to make that more clear.
0: No, so I, I think that, that is. But I understand it from from that is like so. You've got a business, private equity firm comes in and they see gaps in either synergies or efficiency that they think they can streamline by taking over, running it cleaner, becoming vertically integrated, right? Whatever that looks like. Yeah, well, and-
1: vertical integration is definitely the the. It's
0: not something that an individual with a fishing boat can do, right?
1: You can't build buy a processing plant by. 12, 24 boats and create a sales team and then create a whole fluid operation from boat to distribution. And that's something that private equity is the capital to do. They can buy up all these different businesses and fold them into one. And yeah, that's streamlined stuff, right? It, it creates, it makes it more efficient. There's a long debate in labor history or just kind of economic history about efficiencies and economies of scale. And like I said, it's not, not complicated, but especially in something like the fishing industry efficiency it's that old argument that goes back to would you rather have one boat or a hundred boats it would be a lot more efficient to have one boat is it the best thing for the community for the environment for people who, who work in the industry that's a different question certainly it's more efficient that isn't always just a you know the, the end game that is the best option for, for people I, th- I think at least
0: no I think that's I think that's a great point right like mission and values are part of that social structure that that exists on the working waterfront and a lot of our, our main streets and downtowns throughout New England where we have smaller businesses that we've invested in and, and we, we tie our values and communities to. So to that end, one of the people you talk to in this article is Captain Jerry Lehman, and he works for Blue Harvest. He runs one of their boats, and that's really where some of the rubber meets the road when you're talking about control The synergies, saving money, creating value, right? One of the stories you tell about Jerry is he's upset with the settlement sheets that he's getting and not getting paid enough for for his fish. And the story goes that he storms into the Blue Harvest office and demands that he gets a better price for his haddock because there was a better price on the auction than what he was getting paid. Through Blue Harvest, I think was was what that not, story not looked
1: the like. Option, the, the wholesalers, the other places. It's not just from one place. But yeah, he spends a lot of time, as he told me. And I really, for if if you do want to talk about him, I just want. To, I don't know if he's you're in Maine. I know he's from Maine. I I so admired his courage in speaking. But it's not. It's something you re, you see a lot in journalism these days, where everyone feels like they need to ask permission from somebody to to speak and it's probably see it on the municipal level. I cover the city of New Bedford too. And it's very hard to get municipal workers to to talk about what's going on. And it's always just really great. He shared his story, which is the struggles he is facing as a, a captain, which the industry, the whole operation doesn't function without the captain being able to do his job, kind of squared up against this new class of ownership in the fishing industry. And that is private equity. And yeah, it's, it, he outlined what has been a struggle. And by I, I, yeah, I just want to say how much I admired his, his courage and his, his willingness to talk about his experience.
0: And bluntly, it, it made your piece real, right? Like there was, there was a person who was willing to talk about their experiences and how it's impacting their day to day lives, their family's lives, etc. And, and Jerry comes from a, a a great line of, of captains and fishermen in, in Maine and he knows how to catch fish. He's good at it. And so it, it was it was really I, w- I was bluntly shocked that he gave you the access that he did with pictures of the boats and the operations and but I, I thought it was really valuable to your story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. that's that's all all him really it's, I thought the dozens of fishermen who work on Blue Harvest boats, people from who don't speak English, Spanish-speaking people, I think Mexican people too, people from New Bedford, people from Maine, people from New Jersey, fishermen from all over who have, currently are working or have worked at one point or another on their boats. And most didn't want to speak on the record. It's a real fear that if you put your name out there, that they're, that you're going to face repercussions. And that's a problem on its own, right? People are, yeah, I, I don't, he wasn't the only person he spoke to, but he did, he is the one who had the courage to, like, yeah, use this, this should he said, and I'm 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 brave enough to that, to stand by what I say. The fact that he is he is a, a, a esteemed captain, I think, gave him some more clout that maybe a, a crew or a deck deckhand might not have been able to. It's kind of funny. So Brigol Partners, which is the private equity firm that owns or backs or however you want to pitch it, Blue Harvest Fisheries, uh, they wouldn't talk to me. Which, <laughs> but. I, I spoke to quite a few people in the private equity world just to get a better understanding of how they function and what it's like. And it, I had one of them read the story. I'm not going to say his name because it was just on, he was on, on back. He wasn't in the story. Just I was trying to understand what, how they think really. And it, it's kind of funny. Can I read it to you? It's just a text here. Yeah, please uh, do. Because he had an issue with with the story, quite frankly. So he says, well researched, yada yada. The economics, which are govern, the economics which are government controlled and supported, have made it impossible for local fishermen to invest the capital. PE came in. And invested because of a market opportunity and that capital should enjoy a return. This issue is the split and how much return flows to the fishermen and how much to the investors. I believe that this is ultimately solved over time by bargaining. The investors depend on fishermen to do the work and ultimately, if they're not compensated fairly, they will stop working and younger generations will find something else. This will force unions and or a more equitable split of profits. There will also be government intervention this is really how this is really how a free market works it is unrealistic to think that an industry can survive forever on legacy arrangements and family ownership it's a nice romantic ideal but technology and markets change and investment capital has to come in to compete in an efficient manner supply and demand of labor over time will probably balance out the economics or the industry will die anyway well-written piece <laughs> you said but
0: that's really, um, yeah. for someone who works with the diversity of fishing boats, that sounds scary to me, right? Like, I, I Part of the reason why our organization was founded was because we believe deeply in those people and those places and investing in, in those communities as, as a path forward and through rebuilding natural resources and, and everything else. But yeah, that, that's an interesting way for someone from an outside perspective to be looking at the opportunity of the groundfish fishery and bluntly our food system right? That's what we're talking about controlling.
1: Yeah. And if you think about what he said about this kind of labor negotiation and the free market, right? In one sense, that kind of moment you're talking about is that exact thing, which is a labor negotiation, right? I'm not leaving the dock unless you give me what is fair, as he put it. Yeah, it's, it is raw. And it's, it's not like by writing an article about it, we're saying that, it's anything other than just true and how this thing works. It's, it seems accurate more or less. This is kind of the the negotiation going on right now. Like, what can? I mean, there's no question if private equity could pay fishermen nothing to do the job. I'm sure they would, right? But that's not realistic. So there's we're in this moment right now where private equity is kind of a new entrant, kind of feeling out the market, seeing what they can get away with. Essentially, what they can pay fishermen. And it's fishermen like Captain Lehman who are brave enough and who essentially represent their crews who work for them, right? Their contractors and their crews work for the captain, and they're saying, "No, pay up. We 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 deserve what the market bears for the price of our fish, and you shouldn't keep hacking into our our, our settlement with with your co- operating cost as owner." And yeah, so there's other things too. I, I I kind of had issues with the way that guy, the private equity guy in that text, pitched it. It was kind of from the perspective of a 50-story skyscraper in Wall Street, right? He's not here at the dock. That's an easy way to think about it. But realistically, I think the way a more realistic approach to what this labor negotiation is that it's not as simple as like this is just, oh, they do the work and we own it. Like this is people who have had in a lot of ways their occupational ladder really severed when Right now, they're kind of given the ultimatum of either work for less money or we'll find someone desperate enough to do it. And I think that's when it's like free market labor negotiation, it doesn't seem quite free. It seems when kind of way, like feels more like a hostage situation than a negotiation, quite frankly, but it's it's a tough one to weigh. I'm not really quite sure where it lands.
0: No, and I, I think that that's kind of where I want to pull us together towards the end. I do think it's interesting to think about the fixes, Right or hmm. some potential solutions to either rebalance or reconsider the system. And I'm wondering what you've heard through your reporting and after you publish the article that might start pointing to some things that those regulators who set up this system might be able to start considering and thinking about if you are saying this is a valuable thing that maybe we need to consider is the fishermen, diversity of businesses, we have a new player that is operating at a different scale than what we built a fishery to be prepared to, to adapt to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one, especially because in terms of the response I've heard from, I've heard, we've heard a lot of response to the story, right. But it's kind of funny in in response to the story, that from fishermen, it's a, or even from people who are hard workers, maybe work, in other industries the kind of the the a character in the story was this brennick meyer family which in 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 quite a few ways the private equity firm that backs blue harvest is a part of bergal partners investment arm of a firm that's owned wholly by this very very wealthy family in the netherlands and it was kind of funny hearing from a lot of people it the, the way the fishing industry has worked for a long time is big fish eat smaller fish right and it's it keeps going and going and going. And I, I don't think anyone really saw it as in the fishing industry that is saw it as different as the, the way like people on Twitter saw it, which is like, oh, billionaires own everything and they're buying up whole industries, which is true. But this this upwards mobility thing in the fishing industry, I think a lot of people want to be the Brennick Meyers still, right? This Dutch billionaire family. Everyone wants to, they think they can be this person at the top and they don't want to limit their the possibility that they could get there. It's kind of an odd thing in terms of the response I've heard. But yeah, that's not everybody. And from people I've spoken to, from fishermen organizations to individual fishermen who are in the industry or people who are dependent on the leasing market to and it costs them a lot of money to go out each trip. There are definitely real changes that I've heard from people should be addressed. The leasing market seems important, but it seems like it could be better regulated or better managed. The fact 40% of all ground fish permits are available only on the leasing market. Talk about upwards, mob, it's like real estate, real estate, right? Like I've kind of been resigned to never being able to buy a house because of private equity ownership of real estate. The There should be kind of brush cleared for younger generations to come up and start getting some upward mobility. Do I have an answer for how to do that? No, but I've heard frustration at that from people in the younger side of the industry. And the 15.5% antitrust cap on permit ownership or quota for permits, Is very high. Seven companies really can dominate the whole thing. I've heard that people think that should be reined in some way or another to be more equitable. We've heard that there should be more transparency and ownership. It took us weeks to nail down how much quota one company had in terms of looking where to request it. And yeah, this kind of protecting proprietary information is a model that it is important and it makes a lot more sense in a kind of older world of the fishing industry when there's hundreds competing in this free market of the ocean and the Cowboy days stuff. But at the end of the day, when there's one company really dominating, protecting proprietary information does really nothing but allow its expansion to go along unchecked and un, un, unrealized, really kind of quietly. So, yeah, fishermen were calling for more transparency in permanent ownership and the leasing market. And that's what we've seen so far. Do I have an answer? No. Do I? I'm sure if I was a federal regulator, someone on the council, I'd probably resent me for bringing up issues without solutions because everyone's easy to point out issues, right? And I think that their job is very challenging balancing all these situations here. But we are, it does feel like kind of a pivotal moment. And at the end of the day, I'm a journalist, right? I don't, I, I'm not in the fishing. I cover it sometimes, right? But it's the fishermen, it's you, it's the regulators who are in it. And from an outside of perspective, it does feel like a pivotal moment. So yeah, what do you, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. I can talk all day, but do you, do you think there's anything that should be addressed or called? call the story kind of highlights that could be, I don't know, addressed by the, the council or the government in some way?
0: When we put the system in place, I think we had, and I was, I was brand new when the sector system was finalized and signed, sealed, delivered to the, to the fishing industry. Um, but the intent was always to Follow that up with a fleet diversity amendment and figure out how we build towards the future. Right. And at the time when Amendment 16 was passed, the conversation on the docks and in the meeting rooms was this is going to make the fishery more profitable for those fishermen in it. And the idea was if there's profits to be made as we create more flexibility and opportunity for fishermen to right-size their platforms, go fish when the fish are there, when the markets are there, right? That that's when these communities and businesses can be investing in themselves. And and that's how we build the best management, unfortunately. and, And this was one of the pieces that was left out of your piece that is completely understandable is the fish are also in crisis right now. Right. And so the access, the quota lease market, all these things, like our, our science and our marine resources are also struggling to keep up with the times. And that was one of my takeaways was like a deeper thought process of like, well, how are you supposed to manage for the future when you are trying to keep your head above water? And, and by, by we like the managers, there's every single year, there's been another crisis of this fish stock is coming back with a really bad stock assessment, the Gulf of Maine caught a few years ago, Georgia's bank cod right now. And so it's like, how do you build, how do you look at consolidation and say, well, it's consolidating because ownership opportunity, or is it consolidated because we don't have enough fish to go out and catch? And and those things are really complicated, as you said, like super complicated. So that's that's some of the pieces I mean, that, you, that are hard. You can so yeah.
1: the, the whole health of the marine ecosystem through cod, right? Sure, it is a limiting agent when you think of the choke species, which is a, its own complicated thing. But there's if we want to stand by the numbers that federal regulators put out in total allowable catch, there's hundreds of millions of pounds of haddock and pollock and redfish that is able to be caught every year. On us at a sustainable. It's not like I have this trouble with explaining this to people, but it's not that there's a hundred million pounds of haddock in the ocean. It's that there's a hundred million pounds, more than that, one hundred fifty, I think it is, that can be sustainably caught. Right, that's just the percentage that can be caught to keep sustainable yield, keep the population going. That's a ton of fish. That's a half pound of fish for every person in the in the United States.
0: So I, my, the way, only thing I would interject there is that. We call those paper fish because we never see them outside of of the reports. And so you know, we work with a lot of really great fishermen. And if all those Pollock were there, and if all those Haddock were there, they'd catch them. And so that's that's a problem. That's one of those. What's well, one of those gaps in in the well, data I mean, streams?
1: Maybe, yeah, if you go down the path of doubting data, right, it's a slippery slope, and you start thinking about, oh, is it really? Is cod really that low, or is redfish also really that high, or? it's tough right but it's going off the numbers of what they put out there they say should be the total allowable catch it you're right though it does seem like well first of all i just saying I, I feel like the 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 crisis around cod is one thing whereas the viability of a whole industry is another as just i've come to learn at least i could be wrong but but you're right it does seem like as consolidation as the choke species decline and i get more choked up sedation follows and it, it's it, it is an odd kind of relationship I spoke with somebody who really knows the fishing industry and it was on background. So someone who really knows kind of the history of this industry. And I was talking about private equity and he didn't seem too concerned about it, even though he is like a small scale or type fisherman. And he, he said to me, he said, fishing is a corporate history. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, com- like this, 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 this cowboy fisherman, this independent rogue on the water is really only something we ever saw after World War II, when people were coming home from war and kind of had <laughs> PTSD. And we're this last 80 years has been a stretch of that history. And maybe he's right. Maybe fishing is a, a not just corporate history, but a corporate future. If you think about it realistically, like it's tough for people to be dependent on a natural resource to make a living. It's a challenging thing. If you need to catch enough fish to cover your mortgage, that's and the fish aren't there, scary situation in terms of corporate structure, like for an industry to be able to take a hit on in one part of the ocean and not and be able to fish at a higher level on another part of the ocean. Yeah, we're seeing that the
0: corporatization
1: of the fishing industry. Do I think there's a flaw in that and that corporations don't need to pay off their bills too, and can definitely get their hands in the regulatory system. And they're not, it's not this benign force, right? Corporations, had a lot more sway than individuals and individual fishermen, but yeah, it's kind of a more haunting thought. I think personally, as someone who is likes the small boat history, as I think the corporate history. <laughs> I don't know if to make of that really, but it also is hard to really think about. Yeah. The last 80 years, right? Since World War II has been a period of great upwards mobility for the middle class. It's been a great period of middle-class prosperity. And a lot of that is the American dream, build your own destiny, Buy your own boat, catch your own fish, build your own empire, and then sell it to a private equity firm. And maybe we're at the tail end of that. That's what I, how I see the story in a lot of ways. It's like this kind of existential debate at the end of a, a period of of, of uh, upwards mobility for for many generations of immigrants who have come into the fishing industry.
0: Well, that was incredibly profound. Well said. What's next for you? Are you going to continue chasing some of this story or is there other, other work that you're going to be, uh, stories you're going to be digging into on, on the working waterfront of new Bedford?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm still following it. We're working on some responses right now. We're going to keep following the story. It's not, we slay the dragon, right? It's, <laughs> we're still just, it's part of the industry and we're not necessarily against blue harvest in any way. We're just calling out some issues we saw in, in an industry. We're going to keep covering the fishing industry, private equity, regulation, and I mostly have the new Bedford light level, ProPublica. They come in briefly here and there you know, to do a big story, and I appreciate that. But I'm still in New Bedford. I work for New Bedford Light, and I'm just going to keep writing about the industry, writing about city politics, and yeah, I'll be around. So yeah, we can do this more often.
0: Will, I really appreciate the time and energy you put into this story and for joining us today. Thank you. Well done. We'll look forward to some more reporting out of you.
1: Yeah, th- yeah thanks for having me on.
0: Very well. Cool. We'll talk soon. Main Coast Dock Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Dock Talk, you can visit our website maincoastfisherman.org.